Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lori Kilmartin is a stand-up comedian. She writes on Conan. She was on the road when she got the call that her dad was really, really sick. Things weren't looking good. She got on a plane. She took time off of work. She did everything that adult children are supposed to do in those situations. But even as his health got worse, she started to realize. Sometimes, even when you're staring death right in the eye, funny stuff can happen. We have this one piece of hospice video where my sister is sitting, my sister and I are sitting next to my dad, and she asked my dad, you know, what what do you want your grandchildren to know? You know, it, and my dad was sort of, it, 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 you know, I, I look at that video. I'm like, did he just realize then that he's dying? <laughs> it was very, it was very awkward. And yet um, we wanted to hear what he had to say. And then he was about to talk and it was hard for him to talk. And then my mom just bursts into the frame and starts picking up like a candy wrapper that's on the ground in front of my dad on the carpet. And she just ruins it. And it's bullseye. Coming up, more jokes about death from Lori Kilmartin. She's got a book about it and a special, too. The special's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. She'll talk about how she coped with losing her dad and about how the crowd reacted to jokes about, you know, death. Which is weird because this audience that I did the special for was, you know, was like, hey, it's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. And I wanted to warn everyone because I was tired of walkouts <laughs> and people getting angry or upset. But that's my goal is to be able to follow, you know, uh, genital material with cancer jokes. Like that's, <laughs> you know, they, they, they're in a way they're equal human experiences, right? But first, I'll sit down with Padma Lakshmi. She's the host of television's Top Chef. And she's the author of an encyclopedia of spices and herbs. She'll tell me about the spices and cooking that she grew up with. And when you heard the crackling of the mustard seeds, um, something akin to like little machine gun fire or sort of like popcorn, uh, you knew. And you could also smell the aroma of the curry leaves frying. It's a very distinct smell. You knew that dinner was on in a mere amount of minutes. Plus, I'll tell you about the classic Simpsons episode that tells you literally all you need to know about Silicon Valley. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Padma Lakshmi is an author, model, actress, and the host of TV's Top Chef. She's the person telling everyone to pack up their knives and go home. She was born in Chennai, in India. She grew up traveling back and forth between her hometown and New York City. She's written several cookbooks and a memoir. And when I talked with her in 2016, she'd just written an encyclopedia. Literally, it's called the Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs. It is, as the cover says, an essential guide to the flavors of the world. Anyway, my interview with the charming, brilliant, Padma Lakshmi. Padma, your new book is about spices. Um, 
What are the spices that you remember most vividly from, from being a kid? Probably black mustard seeds, cumin, curry leaves, um, red chilies. Those were the basic ingredients that my grandmother fried in a big iron ladle with some oil, usually mustard oil or sesame oil. And when you heard the crackling of the mustard seeds, um, something akin to like little machine gun fire or sort of like popcorn, uh, you knew. And you could also smell the aroma of the curry leaves frying. It's a very distinct smell. You knew that dinner was on in a mere amount of minutes. And I think from a very early age, I sort of stood at the um, at her elbow and... Um, was fascinated by these little seeds and twigs. Did you like the food that your grandma made when you were a kid? You came to the United States as a, I think, like as a preschool when you were four or five, right? Yes, exactly. I came when I was four. Yes, I did. I mean, I was always a good eater, and I was a very curious eater, and I really loved um, things that were heavily spiced, especially when you considered my age. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of a cultural crossing, you know, to get used to American food. When I got to the States, everything seemed very bland to me. I think um, a lot of waiters in New York restaurants were charmed to have a four-year-old ask for Tabasco. (laughs) They thought I was kidding, but my mother said, no, she would really like some Tabasco, please. Did you have cultural crossing issues uh, the other way around? I know a lot of folks who uh, uh, grew up eating uh, the food of their immigrant parents at home uh, who were also, like, uncomfortable bringing friends from school home or whatever because they were worried that their friend from school would think it was weird. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I had cross-cultural clashes left and right, you know, going east and going west. Um In school, I can remember my mother used to send little Tupperware uh, plastic containers with rice and some vegetable curry or kidney beans and a tomato stew. And, you know, it's very pungent, to put it mildly. And everyone else was having these very neat little Wonder Bread sandwiches of peanut butter and jelly, which to me seemed disgusting to eat something that cloyingly sweet that stuck to every (laughs) surface in your mouth when... When I had birthday parties, I was always a little weary, uh, wary, excuse me, of what my mother was going to cook, you know, and I just said, can't we just have pizza, please? What was weird about you and especially the maybe the food that you ate and, uh, you know, your food, uh, food lifestyle, so to speak, when you were spending summers in India? Well, I always had a mental list of things that I was going to eat as soon as the plane landed. And, um, you know, I had a lot of street food. I had have always had Touchwood, a very good, strong stomach. And um, I, I had, you know, these things called chaat, C-H-A-A-T, chaat. And they come in various varieties, but they're all crunchy and salty and tangy and sweet and hot and sour. And no two bites are the same. So you can have puffed rice tossed with fried besan flour um, and fried peanuts that has, you know, a date and tamarind sauce, but also a spicy green chili and coriander chutney. 
and yogurt and black cumin and red chili powder and all of these things put together. Or you can have flat disks of fried um, semolina um, with beets and flour again and, you know, boiled potatoes and boiled chickpeas. And there were just different configurations of of all these elements that had a lot of different textures and flavors. Uh, what was, like, weird and American about you when you were in Chennai or uh, Madras, uh, where your family was from, in the summer? My sense of dress. Because I went to America when I was four, and, you know, when you're four, you're really not even aware of your gender so much. Um, I wasn't taught, like the other kids were, to be bashful, to be um, reserved and covering of our skin. And so when I would go back for summers, I, you know, so hot in South India that I would just wear shorts and a little tube top. I, I want to ask you, uh, we've talked a lot about the uh, breadth of your palate. But I want to know what is gross to you to eat. Offal, tripe, anything. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big organ meat person. I don't like eating um, tongue or, you know, heart or brain and things like that. I still get really, really squeamish about um, certain cuts of meat. I, you know, obviously came to eating meat much later. It wasn't something I started doing until my adolescence, really. And it just... I have real trouble with with those kind of cuts of meat. Like it's the smell, it's the texture, it's the gamey bloodiness of it. Part of a big part of eating meat is pretending that that it's uh, not a part of a living being. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, though that's how uh, I started eating I, meat. Yeah, yeah, and I can't. I can't. I, I don't. I'm not trying to look at the at exactly the part of the animal that I'm eating right then. Um, like I want a little bit of distance. <laughs> you uh, want it shredded. I'll, you want the shredded tongue. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll eat it. I'll eat a lengua taco, easy peasy. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it looks like if it looks like that thing, and I think you know, with tripe, you know, I I don't know. I guess I probably only ever had it much in in pho, mm-hmm. but. It's so it's so goofy looking that it hardly seems like it could be part of the body of an animal. <laughs> so I think that's yeah, why no. I'm cool with eating it. I know, but don't you taste? Isn't there that aftertaste? Can you not detect that it's tongue when you're eating a tongue taco, even if it's chopped up? No, I'm pretty chill. I'm pretty chill with tongue. I mean, there's definitely a big <laughs> difference between there's. It's one of those things where there's a big difference between uh, if it's pretty good or if it's not that good. Right. It's sort of like. Um, Yucca, like yucca is, if you get like stringy, weird yucca, it's super gross. Mm-hmm. But then if you get it really good, it's like, oh, this is totally better than potatoes. Right. Um, yeah, but that's how But it doesn't how, have the sinister it. quality to it. It's still just a, a <laughs> tuber. It's, you know, it comes from the ground. <laughs> it's true. a plant. It's not like as bad as any vegetable. Like, think you know, people have an aversion to eggplant or okra because, you know, it's not cooked properly and gets very slimy. But, you know, it's still just a plant. Like, it's so innocuous. But when there's something slimy and um, nondescript or murky, when it's a non-vegetarian thing, I think it just takes on a whole nother sinister thing for me. I like that you think of it as sinister, specifically. I do. I feel like not very... just gross, like threatening. I do. I feel... But that's how, you know, I was conditioned to feel like that, I think. I mean, I remember... 
when I came to this country, my grandfather, who loved America, was an you know American lover of all American culture, from baseball to jazz to show tunes to everything, and he made me memorize all fifty states and their capitals in alphabetical order, which is something I. No, I can't do now even. But, you know, he also said, be careful because meat lurks everywhere, even when you're not suspecting it. And it will be cold there and you'll order tomato soup or vegetable soup. And sure, it may have a few vegetables in it, but the broth is actually, you know, the boiled bone water of an animal. And so anywhere that you look, meat can be lurking. Like French fries, you love French fries or donuts, but they could be fried in um, liquefied fat of a pig. They call it lard, you know? (laughs) Right. So, you know, I felt like I was coming to another planet. Um, The most dangerous things in my grandmother's kitchen, you know, was her coconut grater and the chilies. (laughs) That's, you know... (laughs) How do you deal with eating like uh, the sort of cavalcade of foods that is required for your job on Top Chef, especially when there are a bunch of things that you have to eat? And, you know, while you're eating them, you also have to be uh, lending a hand in in telling a story. So, like, you can't you can't make a face. <laughs> you have to make a very specific kind of face yes. and that kind of thing. It's very funny because I have no poker face. So, um, you know, once I take a bite, the camera will usually cut away from me. Um, but I, it's hard. You know, it's really hard because it's not like just overeating. It's not like having a fourth portion of lasagna or a third portion of, you know, pulled pork tacos or whatever the heavy dishes. It's having... All of those things. It's having a little bite of this and a little bite of that. And each dish has, you know, 12 or 15 ingredients in it and components on the side. It, it's, I mean, I don't have a poker face. I think, you know, sometimes I'm really trying to figure out what the chef's intention is. You know, what were they going for? Um, because if they were going for something that was kind of bitter, then okay, they succeeded. Um, whether it's pleasurable to me or not, if that is the best example of what they were trying to do, then you have to give them points. Like if they make a great tongue salad, you know, and I don't happen to like tongue, I can't, I can't take points away from them. You were a model for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the, obviously, a big part of uh, being a model is, uh, you know whatever, a gift, you know, being very good looking. Yeah. (laughs) Which uh, I will stipulate you are. Thank you. Um, But I think the other, uh, the other part of being a model and one of the skills of being a model is being aware of how you look, Um, you know, gift and a curse, obviously. But part of it is, you know, you are reflecting, you are able to produce whatever this image is supposed to look like in your face and body and so on and so forth. Um, And I don't think there is any time except maybe like in the middle of laughing uh, that we look weirder than when we are eating. 
Yeah. And I wonder if you, <laughs> I wonder if you had to develop like the skills to eat in a way that wasn't weird or embarrassing looking on camera. I'm yeah. I mean, I'm a. I talk with my mouth full all the time. Um, we, you know, it's funny that you say that because sometimes I go online, which is not a good practice usually, but and read some of the comments. You know, I think GQ did a piece on me recently, and they posted it on their social media, and I went to see, read the comments there, and one of the guys said, "Oh, you know, she's so heinous. She she's terrible the way she eats." And I actually like answered him on. The their, on their Instagram and said, I'm sorry, I'll try and do better next time. Um, but, you know, it's it's difficult. I, I try not to be too messy, but, um, you know, and I try not to spill because obviously we're, you know, we're a small cable food show. And so we don't have two of everything. So if I soil my blouse, it's going to remain soiled. I mean, we'll stop production and try to get the stain out, but if we can't get it out, it's not like we can't, you know, we're going to change the top. We're just going to note it and move on. You're, there are not a lot of books uh, that are written by stores, but your book, The Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs, uh, has two co-credits underneath Padma Lakshmi. In the titles, one is a writer with whom you worked on uh, the book. One is a store. Um, tell me about that third writing credit on the book. Sure. Calustians is an institution in New York City for generations and generations of immigrants. Uh, it opened in the 40s, and it was... Um, originally an Armenian dried fruit and nut store. There were two Orthodox churches right near that area, um, just above Gramercy Park, sort of between Gramercy Park and Murray Hill in the late 20s, early 30s on Lexington Avenue. And then it changed hands, and it the store changed with the neighborhood as it changed. And so Indians would start to go there because they would carry some Turkish spices, not just Armenian ingredients, and it kind of spread from there. And now the whole area is called Curry Hill instead of Murray Hill because there are all these Indian grocery stores and little food joints. And in the 70s, my mother and I lived on the Upper East Side because she was a nurse at Sloan Kettering Hospital. And we would go to Calustians. In those days, it was really hard to get cilantro anywhere. And if you knew the guy really well, they would sort of take you in the back and under a moist burlap sack, they would sort of show you the stash, like they were selling you a dime bag you know, of cilantro. And he would save it for his best customers. And 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 so you know it 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 now has anything any spice from any part of the world you could ever imagine if you were going to give me a casual home cook who primarily is cooking pork shoulders um and green beans with butter um a, a spice a single spice what would it be and I'm not talking about salt or pepper. Something that something that probably isn't in my spice rack right now, or that I might not think of the way that you would have me think of it. If it's not salt and pepper, I would say probably sumac, or perhaps za'atar. Um, sumac is in za'atar, but za'atar is um, a Middle Eastern spice blend. It has 
thyme, wild thyme in it. It also has sesame seeds. Um, it's a lovely. You you'll see it often rubbed on Middle Eastern flatbreads. Sumac is uh, a dried red berry. It used to grow in North America. It grows all over the Middle East. If it's if you eat you know a bushel of it, it's poisonous. But you wouldn't. Um, but when it's dried and powdered, it has this beautiful, rich vermilion color. This lovely, lovely burgundy red that you can just sprinkle on things, and it gives a fruity tartness that has a depth to it that is beautiful. When we add acidity or sourness to a dish, usually we add it with citrus, like lemon or lime, or with vinegars. This allows you to add sour notes to a dish without adding moisture, and it you know doesn't seem like a big deal until you talk about uh, different things that you want to season, um, like like your pork shoulder. You know, it'd be beautiful as a spice rub on your on your pork shoulder. I would love to be able to credibly use the phrase "rich vermilion." <laughs> I'm a public radio host. That should be like one of my. That should be in my rack of skills, but <laughs> I I just haven't got it. <laughs> More of my conversation with Padma Lakshmi when we return from a break. Plus, Lori Kilmartin talks about her death-themed comedy show. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together, we bring you Wow in the World. NPR's podcast for families. Every week, we explore wild and new scientific discoveries. We also ride a bird. We also ride a bird. Find Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows, all with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Padma Lakshmi. She's the host of television's Top Chef, and she's the author of the Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs. We talked in 2016. I need to I need to ask you about something that um, I feel like my show is the one public radio show that will take the time to ask you about. Um, you uh, were an actress before you were a television host um, and writer, and you're in the movie Glitter. Oh, God, yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, you play uh, you play a disco diva mm-hmm. who uh, who is not a strong singer. No, to put it mildly. Um, let's let's play a little bit. This is, of course, the the classic Mariah Carey vehicle. Let's play a, a little bit of that. This is not a classically good movie. No. Um, <laughs> uh, how does it feel? But it is a movie that many people, 
I know treasure very deeply. I know. Um, it's... <laughs> what's it like to have that acting credit on your resume? And, and how do you feel about being having been in, you know, one of the great camp classics of the last 25 years or so? <laughs> At the time, you know, when you're making a movie, there's so many people involved. It's a big circus that comes together and then there's all this stuff in post-production so you have no idea whether you're making Citizen Kane or or Glitter and it just you know I think I don't know what to say about it really <laughs> I really don't You've, you you suffer from endometriosis mm-hmm. um, which is a, a condition that I'll give a very quick summary and you'll tell me if I'm wrong because uh, mm-hmm. I went to public high school. But um, uh, it's essentially, you know, the the process of of a woman's reproductive period involves shedding the lining of the uterus. Right. And if you have endometriosis, that lining does not shed properly or or as it does in other people. And it causes very serious cramping and pain, um, you know, for... A, a kind of a regular period of every month mm-hmm. and also other related pain. Mm-hmm. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. It's very uh, debilitating. I mean, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36. And, you know, I went through puberty when I was 13. So that's a week every month for 23 years, you know, 25% of my life that I was in chronic pain. And when I say chronic pain, I mean taking prescription painkillers in bed with a heating pad or hot water bottle, feeling nauseous, having a headache, feeling numbness, pain running down one leg, having backache, having digestive problems. And, you know, I think when we get that talk about the birds and the bees from our elders, we're conditioned to accept that pain because anything to do with a woman's reproductive system, childbirth, all of it is our lot in life and is painful. Do you feel like talking about it has, and being so public about it, has changed the way that you relate to the world, not just about this, but about other things? I think, yes. I think the only good that could come out of being undiagnosed for those many years is that it galvanized something inside of me and made me want to do something about it because, you know, I didn't want the next generation of women to to lose 25% of their life and to not be able to play volleyball or go on the debate team or, or whatever they wanted to do. And that was the first step, speaking out about it. You know, it wasn't overnight. It took some cajoling and sort of getting used to, but it was very liberating to speak about it. And then once I spoke about that, it gave me courage to to write my memoir. And, you know, that was a very scary thing to do as well. But I have to tell you, it's 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 quite astonishing how... You know, I'm 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 pretty much Indian. I'm very Americanized because I've grown up in this country. But inside, I'm still affected by um, my Indian culture. And in Indian culture, like in many Asian cultures, you're taught to be reserved. You know, to be very reserved and not to speak too much about your personal life and um, 
all of that. And, and, you know, what I've done is just do the complete opposite. And it feels so good because I'm not, I don't, I'm not a scaredy cat anymore. You know, all those things that I was embarrassed about or ashamed of or didn't feel I had worked out, you know, there's nothing anyone can say about me now that I haven't said about myself. Well, Padma, um, I so appreciate you taking all this time to come talk to me on Bullseye. Um, thank you so much for doing it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great talk. I guess it's time for me to pack my knives and go. Whoop. Thank you, Padma. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for having me on. Padma Lakshmi, the Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs, is a spectacularly beautiful and fascinating book. Padma is still on Top Chef. She is still great at being on Top Chef. She also just made an appearance on RuPaul's Drag Race. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's almost like a Hallmark movie. Laurie Kilmartin's dad died of lung cancer in 2014. He was 83 years old. When he got the diagnosis, Lori took time off from her job writing for Conan O'Brien. She flew up to visit as often as she could. And to deal with all the stress and the grief, she started tweeting about everything. Sad moments, angry moments, funny moments. The tweets turned into jokes that she tried out on stage. And then the jokes turned into an entire show. 45 jokes about my dead dad. We talked early last year. And since then, Lori's gone on to release the show as an album that's available now. She also just wrote a book. It's called Dead People Suck, A Guide for Survivors of the Newly Departed. It's out now. Here's a little bit from the beginning of 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. Knock, knock. <laughs> Not my dad, he's dead. <laughs> that's the first joke, guys. Uh... 44 more to go. And then, then we're all going to get the massage of a lifetime. <laughs> I organized a group on for everybody here. Uh, it's it's going to be pretty awesome. No, um, my dad died in, in March, so I, I feel like of the Kubler-Ross uh, five stages, I've been through three. Uh, denial, anger, Twitter. <laughs> uh, this might be four, the stand-up special. And then five is finding distribution. That's, a, that's, a, that's an L.A. audience. You know exactly what the stages of death and dying are. Lori Kilmartin, welcome to Bullseye. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on finding distribution. Thank you. <laughs> the final stage of death. First and foremost. <laughs> I'm, on street, I'm on CISO. <laughs> um, I guess... Uh, Maybe just tell me what kind of guy your dad was. Wow. He was he he was a great guy. I mean, he he's the guy that would pull over and help anybody if they were stranded. He he loved dogs. I you you can't go wrong with someone who loves dogs. He walked <laughs> a dog uh for 50 years an hour a day. Um he was he was a very supportive dad. Um 
it's weird because there's like the dad I know, and then there's the letter to the editor's dad, <laughs> who was very conservative. And you know, if you just read that, you'd be like, Gee, you know, it, it, it would be the kind of guy I would be angry at on Twitter, you know, if I read that. But then I, I know my dad; he he loved me, and he was he was a great family man, and uh, very Catholic, and and believed very much in going to mass and 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 all that stuff and very very loving what did your parents think about you and your sister who seemed to have a lot of um a lot of investment in being funny i i think they 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 laughed mostly you know and most of the time the butt of the joke is my mom (laughs) because she uh she's just she just can't stop crossing boundaries and you just can't stop pointing it out. You know, she's like the Donald Trump of the family where it's so ridiculous. You you just can't let it slide. Um, and my dad was sometimes a butt of the joke just for being, you know, he was from Kansas and he didn't get a lot of references and he pronounced things oddly. Elizabethan. I, <laughs> I'll never get that out of my head. Um, uh, so we, we'd make fun of him a little bit, but it was mostly my sister and I uh, aiming at my mother. You're pretty brutal to your mom in this She deserves special. every single joke. <laughs> <laughs> and the stuff I'm working on now is even meaner and <laughs> even more satisfying to me. <laughs> I mean, you're like totally relentless. And you were, you know, when you were sending tweets about your father's death. Yeah. Thirty percent of them were at the expense of your mother. Well, it's you know I think this is probably how a lot of people handle death. But you know while we're trying to have these intimate moments with our dad, my mom's obsession with cleaning and wiping the table off and asking us to move something was infuriating. And I know that's just how she was processing it or not processing it. But yeah, we could you know you can't let that go. did you and your dad live in the same general place when you found out he was sick? Uh, both in California, yeah. Uh, me in Southern California, and he was in the Bay Area. And so I started flying up a lot, you know, uh, a lot on the weekends and hanging out. And um, I called him all the time. I recorded all of our conversations. I have tons of audio of my dad. And he, I, he's like – he's my a major artist on my iTunes, my iTunes. So, you know, sometimes I'll just play our phone calls just to hear his voice. Like what kind of phone call? Just, you know um, – What has the most stars? <laughs> there's one where – this is actually recording from before he got sick and his voice sounds younger too. It's, it's, it's interesting. The most audio I have of my dad is voices – He's 83 and he's dying and it's a different voice. And then I, I, I have a couple where he's, you know, in his 60s or 70s and he sounds really young. He's talking about being in Korea or growing up in Topeka and the bootlegger's daughter. Her name was Juanita and all these, you know, kind of stories uh, from when he was a kid. And then then the the second half are just me calling up and asking him how much he weighs. <laughs> Why isn't he eating more? And, you know, just me, a lot of me nagging him. My my parents are both in their 70s, and they're very, very hearty people. But my dad got uh, kind of sick recently. I didn't even hear about it till afterwards. And it wasn't life-threatening, but I, I don't think I've ever felt so vividly the geographic distance of this choice that I had made yeah. to leave home. Like that I 
I had decided, I grew up also in the Bay Area, and I had decided to move to Los Angeles, you know, to work and live. And the second my parents became vulnerable, I was like, oh, wow, I I sure picked that. Yeah. Did you have that feeling? Yeah. But it it would have been worse if I'd been mostly based in New York. You know, this way, you know, this way I I was just one Southwest flight away. You know, I I made that trip a lot. And um, but yeah. Definitely. I wish I'd have been there, been able to help him, just drive him around to doctor appointments and stuff like that. You know, I, I tried not to miss too much, but obviously I missed a lot. How did you find out he was sick? Well, he'd been it's weird. You know, there's this point when they go from in their 70s to their 80s where they become elderly. And I guess my dad just seemed like a regular dad for a long time. And then, I, I you know, you go, wow, <laughs> he 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 passed that that barrier, I guess. And now he's, he's elderly. And, and, um, and then I heard, you know, he wasn't doing well, but he's, you know, one of those guys that would never go to the doctor and felt he was fine because he worked out all the time. And, um, uh, and so I, I, I was just hoping something really horrible wasn't going on. And, and then I was on the road and working in Austin. Um, and, uh, then I heard that he had been hospitalized and they found lung cancer. Did somebody call you? Or? Yeah, my mom did. Yeah, yeah. He was walking the dog, and he did. I guess there was a blood clot moving up his arm, and his arm had swollen, t- you know, terribly. And he he wanted to make sure he walked the dog first. <laughs> so <laughs> my mom and I was on the phone yelling at him, "Dad, go to the hospital!" He's like, "I'm just going to go up the block and back." You know, she's she's got to pee, and um, so we yelled at him and got him. You know, I was yelling at him from Texas, and my mom was trying to get him in the car. She was, like, following him in the car while he was walking the dog. <laughs> um, and they got him into the hospital. And I guess the clot was part of, you know, some it had something to do with the lung cancer. And, you know, if they hadn't gotten him there, you know, within minutes, you know, he would have been – you know, he might have died or something like that. So It's funny that you were on the road when that happened. I think for a lot of comics – there's literally nothing that will stand between them and their obligation to perform right. road dates. Yeah. Like I know comics who've gone on stage with like pneumonia or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, like, like uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, they get hit by a car and they're like, okay, I, I got to do my 45 and then I can get over to the. <laughs> the adrenaline covers up so much, yeah. you know, of being on stage. And then, then it hits you when you get off stage. Yeah, I, I, it was a Saturday that I found out that he was in the hospital and I had two shows that night. So I wasn't leaving. I mean, you know, he, he also wasn't in danger. Once he was hospitalized, he wasn't in danger of, of dying that day. So, you know, as soon as, you know, I had, I had two Saturdays and a Sunday and then I went and visited him. What was it like to uh, go on stage and do material about uh, the relative size of your boyfriend's business or whatever? <laughs> um, and uh, uh, when, like, four hours earlier, especially for that like, the late show where everyone's drunk, <laughs> um, when you had just had this just totally gobsmacking thing happen? Pretty easy. I was already talking about my dad seeming elderly. I think I had a couple jokes about that. So, you know, I was already doing that stuff. Um, yeah, it, I, I wasn't. It was weird. I was not worried about him because he was really healthy. And I, I, you know, I only 
worried about him when he went to hospice, really. I mean, I was just in, I couldn't believe he would die. Not, you know, not that. Not yet. No way. You know, he's going to be one of those guys that lives to be 100. That's what I was really convinced about. So I just I, I, I don't know. I wasn't as worried as I should have been. We'll finish up my conversation with comedian Lori Kilmartin after a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When C.C. Wong met his mom's new tenant, he never suspected he'd end up getting replaced as a son or that his replacement might have sinister motives. This week, Invisibilia looks at the things we don't say to our loved ones and the misunderstandings it can lead to. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer and comedian Lori Kilmartin. She's the author of the new book, Dead People Suck, a guide for survivors of the newly departed. She also created the one-woman show, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. I... Followed your Twitter for a long time before you started tweeting about your father's sickness. And, you know, your career, besides as a stand-up comic, is as a joke writer for the Conan O'Brien show. Mm -hmm. Um, You write monologue jokes. And um, I wonder if it was a choice to write these jokes that were about – I mean, right at the beginning, was it a choice to write these jokes that were about something so personal – um, and so intense, or was it just something that happened and then started building? I, I think uh, I think it happened and started building. I I you know it's weird. I I was gonna you know I, I'm from the Bay Area, so I have there's a million places I could go up and perform, but I didn't want to leave my dad, you know, his bedside. Um, when he was on hospice, so I just started tweeting stuff I probably would have tried that night at an open mic or something. I feel like the stakes of your work were relatively high um, because you have a kid and are a single parent and, uh, you know, you had had this long career as a stand-up comic, Mm -hmm. but that's a job that, you know, you couldn't necessarily do at least enough to support yourself fully when you have a school-age kid that you're responsible for. Yeah. And this was, I mean, this was like your first big professional job doing this other thing, writing jokes. Yeah, I'd had some some smaller writing jobs, but this is like the big one. This is like the one where it was <laughs> what is... paid your bills, right? And... Yeah, and I want I wanted to lead my own obituary. Yeah. <laughs> Conan Ryder dies. <laughs> don't put my name in it. Don't you don't need that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean it, it it must have been scary as as lovely as everyone at the Conan show is, and they're unusually lovely for, you know, uh, such a yeah. such a difficult, challenging show right. business situation yeah. as making a daily show. But, um, you know, there must have just been this feeling like, oh, wow, like this is the most important thing in the world that my father is sick. Yeah. I have the other most important thing in the world. I'm responsible for my child. Yeah. So, like sub- almost sub- solely responsible for my child. And I also have this job that's like the 
the best job that I could have of this yeah. and the first one I've ever had. And I don't know what gets you fired from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I initially was trying to write monologue jokes while I was taking care of my dad. You know, I was like, oh, this would just be like working from home, you know, and it quickly I just couldn't. You know, I, I, just, <laughs> I think I sent in three and then disappeared again without without saying, hey, I'm not going to write any more jokes. I kept intending like I kept feeling guilty that I wasn't writing monologue jokes. And then as my dad got closer and closer to death, I just said, you, you know, be here 100 percent and don't feel guilty about it. And everyone seems to be surviving. OK, you know, other people are writing Chris Christie jokes. You're good. You know, Kylie's got me covered. The other writers, they're good. Um, but yeah. And, and also, I didn't know, you know, the hospice nurse came by and she said he could be like this for six weeks. And I was like, my both my sister has a job, too. We're both like, oh, my God, we can't. We can't be gone for six weeks, you know. And then my, you know, we joked that my dad, you know, may have heard us and quickly died because <laughs> he didn't believe in vacations either. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was terrifying too. The whole thing. Let's hear some more comedy from my guest Lori Kilmartin and her new special, which is called Forty Five Jokes About My Dead Dad." Um, so uh, in this clip, she's she's talking about what it's like to buy a birthday gift for your dad when you when his uh, uh, when his death is imminent. <laughs> um, now let's listen. Um, my dad turned eighty three when he was dying. That was a, that was a very strange birthday. We knew it was his last birthday, uh, and it was odd. It was like uh, I didn't know what to get my dad. Do I get him something he wants? or something I want <laughs> to inherit in what would seem to be weeks. <laughs> I got him an iPad. <laughs> That's what every old person wants, is to learn new technology <laughs> when they're dying. That's One of the things that I like about the special is that you talk a little bit about how different it was to spend time with your dad um, when he was sick. Yeah, um, it was awesome because <laughs> he was a very busy guy and he he's a guy that had books all over the place and, and he was always trying to learn something and he, you, he always felt like he was a little bit behind. So he was he constantly had that rushing energy and you know he stopped he just stopped I mean he he physically couldn't and I think he you know after a while he knew he was this was it and he just hung out you know and he was he would be awake and then unconscious or asleep and then awake and when he was awake we we just would sit with him we'd play Linda Ronstadt and just talk about things and he would you know what at some point he couldn't speak, so all he could do is listen. And that was just kind of like very magical, you know. And um, he also uh, – he, he – I, I think he had a tendency – like I always remember my dad's eyes darting, you know. Like he was just on to the next thing in his head all the time. And when he was in hospice, he he was so peaceful and, his, and he, he just would look at me for like a minute straight, which is – the most intense eye contact I ever had with him. And it was, it, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> what didn't you expect about um, your father being sick and dying? 
Um, well, I didn't expect him to die, you know, and I thought he could beat it. And I, I guess, uh, I guess we're sort of fed the story about cancer, like you can beat it if you really fight it. And, and my dad's, you know, he was going to fight it. He was a he was a war veteran, and he, he was healthy, and he was going to fight it. And um, then I didn't think it was going to die, and I didn't. Um, you know, I've been lucky in that that was my first big death. Yeah, I hadn't had a had a really impactful death before that, which is, you know, I'm lucky to have lived that life. But to, to that absence is striking, and um, I, I guess I remember going into his office after he was gone, and it, before you know, like his den, his home office, um, just realizing, oh. These pencils, no, he's never going to write with these pencils again. That's his toothbrush. That's ne- you know, and it, 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 all the objects that um, he's never going to touch again, and are, they all felt very still. And before they felt like they were moving, you know, like he would be picking up his toothbrush tomorrow, he'd be writing tomorrow, and now they wouldn't be moved again unless we just collected them to throw them away. It's funny that you say that. Your mom spent this time, you know, cleaning and straightening up. And that was her way of dealing with it or not dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in a way, you know, you also took this incredible emotional challenge and put it into the game that you knew best, you know? (laughs) My version of compulsive cleaning, (laughs) writing jokes. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I mean, one of the things about a joke is it's like it has a structure that is like, if if you're good at writing them, Mm -hmm. which you are, um, you know, there's there's this structure that you know, and there's, it's like a path towards a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. And especially in front of an audience or even on Twitter where you count those, uh, I, I call them star points. Yeah. They're hearts <laughs> the now. Hearts, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you're like, old school. Yeah. You're like, tr- you're tracking that like, and you're like, yes, this this machine I built worked. Yes. This one killed. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is like your, that's your version of what your mom was doing. No, you're totally right. You're right. Um, although... Yeah, I mean, my I, we have this one piece of hospice video where my sister is sitting. My sister and I are sitting next to my dad, and she asked my dad, "You know what? What do you want your grandchildren to know?" You know, it, and my dad was sort of, it, 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 you know, I, I look at that video. I'm like, did he just realize then that he's dying? <laughs> it was very, it was very awkward, and yet um, we wanted to hear what he had to say. And then he was a about to talk and it was hard for him to talk and then my mom just bursts into the frame and starts picking up like a candy wrapper that's on the ground in front of my dad on the carpet and she just ruins it she ruined this moment and that's what she did she just ruined a lot of poignant moments and so she does it so much that almost becomes poignant <laughs> like that's her job in the family is to barge not notice emotions and not 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 feel any kind of tension in the air, and just come in and crash into it. Um, what did you do with your son this whole time? Your son is now what nine or ten, right? He's ten, yeah. So he was seven or eight. He came up for a couple days, and 
And my sister brought her kids down who are around the same age. And, you know, they're just hanging around grandpa. And it was the first couple of days of my dad's hospice. So he could still talk and enjoy them. And, um, uh, and it was just sort of, it felt like a Christmas or something, you know, where everyone was gathered together. And then they both left on the same day. Um, I think his, my son's father came up and took him back and, um, where I flew him back. I can't actually I can't remember how I got him back down to LA, but I did. And my sister's husband took their her kids back. Um and then it was just the four of us. It was my sister, me, my mom and dad, like the original four of the family. <laughs> the original members of the band. And it was pretty Sweet, like the X Men in the yellow suits. <laughs> if I understood uh, comic yeah. books and paid I think attention, I got that I right. Oh, please don't send me tweets about it. <laughs> please don't tell me tweets about it. <laughs> oh man, sounds like a disaster in the making. <laughs> um, let's hear some more comedy from my guest Lori Kilmartin. Uh, her new special is about uh, the time she spent with her father as he was sick and eventually died. Um, in this clip, she's talking about her dad's funeral, and um, she said uh, she said that her is this a this must be a real thing because it's mm. too specific not to be a real thing that that his funeral got bumped. <laughs> totally real, totally real. Yeah, it was supposed <laughs> to be on Sunday, and then somebody else somebody else had died a couple days after my dad, but they were going to have a bigger funeral, and so we got bumped to Monday. Um, let's take a listen. So we, we had to do the Monday funeral. And I don't know if you know this. Uh, funerals are like stand-up comedy. It's impossible to get people to come to the Monday show. <laughs> I, I had to stand outside the church and bark mourners in. <laughs> I was like, free funeral. Uh, the eulogizer has been on Conan. <laughs> so come on in. <laughs> uh, if you pretend you're Catholic, there's one free drink. We uh, we packed the house. When did you start doing jokes on stage about this? I started before he died. Um, again, thinking, you know, that sort of magical thinking of if you talk about it, it won't happen. Um, so I started talking about it beforehand. And then afterwards, immediately, you know, immediately. It, it was almost a, the... Part of the um, changeover when you go from having both your parents alive to having one of them gone is getting used to saying they're dead and getting used to using the past tense and saying dad was instead of dad is. And um, so uh, the sooner I could do that in a joke, the better, you know, and it's weird. I think jokes started working better when he was dead because when he was alive, I think now when I look back on it, the audience was like, why are you on stage? (laughs) Go home. (laughs) Why are you telling us this joke? (laughs) Like, I think the crowd knew the outcome more than I did. And after, after he was dead, of course, you know, there's no place for me to go and I should be on stage. And I think that helped a lot of the jokes that I had earlier. I just kind of switched verb tenses a little bit. They worked a little bit better after he was gone. There's this thing about stand-up comedy, which is that it is a very delicate balance uh, where you have to give the audience enough comfort uh, to know that they're in a secure place. And that includes emotionally and the the whole nine yards in order to uh, upset the apple cart and have them enjoy it. Um, 
And I imagine it must have been hard to figure out what that was. Yeah. You know, for a time I thought, oh, you know, the audience doesn't want to hear this stuff, you know, and I like working regular comedy clubs and trying to get away with as much as I can. I don't I don't want to like it necessarily, which is weird because this audience that I did the special for was, you know, was like, hey, it's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. And I wanted to warn everyone because I was tired of walkouts <laughs> <laughs> and people getting angry or upset. But that's my goal is to be able to follow you know, uh, genital material with cancer jokes. Like that's, you know, they, they're they in a way they're equal human experiences, right? You know, stand-up comedy mostly is about you as the comic and your personal voice and personal experiences. And your father dying couldn't be more essential to that, you know. It's one of the most important things that will happen in your life. Mm-hmm. Um. It's also something that happened to your father even more than it happened to you and happened to your family as much as it happened to you. And I wonder how you thought about um, how you thought about the fact that this was also someone else's experience and your job in you know you know your job is public, you know, like being a memoirist, you have to decide what to what to write in the book. I know. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I guess before my dad died, if, if you Googled his name, a co- you know, his resume, his engineering resume would come up and that might be it. And then the other guys with his names <laughs> with him, <laughs> in Yonkers or whatever. And now it's, you know, his daughter tweeted it. It's, it's she's a comedian. It's it's all about me and how I treated his death like that, you know, and he never wanted to be famous or anything. So it, he, you know, it wouldn't he wouldn't care. Um, he was he wasn't googling his name. He, it was not of interest to him. But but yeah, it it does bother me <laughs> that you know, or the only picture that shows up is him when he's dying. You know, um, but on in the other on the other hand, he's he's gone. You know, and now I'm left with this this all these emotions, and this is how I deal with it. And now it's mine. You know. I um I know some people who are in the public eye, not very many, who never Google themselves and don't pay attention to what other people say, and genuinely just follow their muse their muse to the stars, yeah, and all that stuff. Um, I know I'm not one of those people. <laughs> uh, God bless them. I admire them. Uh, and I know from having read how you felt about w- w- being on the. Uh, network TV show, Last Comic Standing, that yeah. you're probably not one of those people. <laughs> that I don't like to follow what people say about me? Yeah, well, that you that uh, that you are sensitive to it. Yes, I am. Not, I don't mean to say extraordinarily because yeah. most people are, but... Less so now, but when I, when I was for... I'll never forget this comment where someone just said, I don't like the shape of her face. <laughs> Which, there's like there's really nothing I can do about that. Like I I can't get a face job. I can't do anything about that. That's <laughs> it, it it it's so strange that people do that and think they think you wouldn't read it. Um but one of the things of putting yourself uh putting something so intimate out into the public is that you know that it will come back. And I I imagine that you know, most people aren't monsters. I imagine that the reaction was mostly, 
you know, wow, I'm I'm sad you're going through this difficult thing. I've had an experience like that and yeah. it's tough and I support you type reaction. But you know that when you do that, you are opening the door to reactions. Yeah. And I I I I'm mostly worried like I, I if someone says, "Oh, you're exploiting your dad for money." Like I'm not you know, right now I'm I'm twenty six thousand dollars in the hole. You know, I might break even. Maybe I'll make money off of it later. I don't know, but it's definitely I, I, that's not why I did it. And I and I and I paid for it myself, thinking, oh, I'll just put it on YouTube and maybe get some. You know, I, I was willing to lose that money just to get it out there artistically. You know, there's a joke in the special, or an anecdote in the special that I really like, which is. You saying that while your father was on his deathbed, uh, he had collected a list of friends' dogs to say hello to (laughs) in heaven. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all of his friends – yeah, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) No, go ahead. Well, all of his friends are dog park friends. He knows like a couple engineers, a couple priests, and then everyone else is dog park people. And the dog park people came out. Like we had family members I couldn't stop by. But the dog people were there in full force. And and some people couldn't handle it, but the people that could were – were wonderful. And the dog people, you know, that's the, the everyone thinks their dog is going to heaven and they assume my dad would too. And he could see all of his Pepsis. He's had several Labradors named Pepsi and they're all waiting for him. That's what he thought. And so he was more than happy to take their messages to their dogs. You talk in the special about your father writing uh checks for the collection plate, (laughs) um, leaving them on the dining room table, uh, and you writing in the memo section, pedophile defense fund. (laughs) And I guess I wonder if when you think of your dad now, you think of him being in heaven. I don't know that I believe that. Well, I definitely don't believe the Catholic version of heaven or the Christian version of heaven, but I... I do believe I, – I don't know who said this quote. You know, not only like, – like the universe is stranger than we can even think. I I do believe that that I'll, I'll see him again or sense him again, you know? Which of all these jokes that you wrote on Twitter was your favorite? I guess the, the one I still tell is where – my son was seven, and he said, uh, had, my dad had lung cancer, and my son said, how did Grandpa get lung cancer? And I said, well, he quit a long, long time ago, but for many, many years, Grandpa played Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, an amazing 10-minute deterrent, and then my son was willing to die <laughs> of lung cancer. <laughs> Laurie Kilmartin, I'm so grateful to see you again. So grateful for this uh, great, hilarious special. Thank you so much. Laurie Kilmartin, ladies and gentlemen. Her album, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, is available to stream and download. Give it a listen. Her book, Dead People Suck, is available in bookstores now. Every week, we like to close out Bullseye with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. 
So I was walking in San Francisco the other day in the Mission District, where I grew up. It used to be kind of a rough neighborhood. Now, thanks to tech money, it's really the opposite. As I was strolling down Valencia Street, I couldn't help but think about a Simpsons episode I watched the other day. It's about 20 years old now. It's called You Only Move Twice. Here's the plot. Homer gets offered a new job in a new city, and he is excited about it. But the family like Springfield. They don't want to go. So Homer puts a video into the VCR about the new town. It's called Cypress Creek. Cypress Creek, a tale of one city. Uh, let's watch up, Mouse. Homer, you're trying to talk us into moving to this place. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's watch this. Look at this place. Somebody ought to build a town that works. Somebody did. We see an abandoned five and dime transform into a coffee shop. Then a bar becomes an espresso shop. Then a dumpster becomes a coffee cart. Then a bum becomes a mailbox. Cypress Creek, a planned community designed for the workers of the Globex Corporation. Cypress Creek, where dreams come true. Your dreams may vary from those of Globex Corporation, its subsidiaries, and shareholders. It's a promising dream. The Simpsons bite. They pick up stakes, they move to Cypress Creek. It's a technological super future, ruled by a benevolent corporate master, CEO Hank Scorpio, played by one of the greatest comedy geniuses of them all, Albert Brooks. I am here to welcome you on behalf of the president of the Globex Corporation. Me! Try the papayas. They're juicy and full of papayin. Makes you strong like Popeye. Popeye, Popeye, in, Popeye, Popeye, in. See, same thing, same book. Uh, forget it. How are you? I'm Hank Scorpio. Wow, my boss. Don't call me that word. I don't like things that elevate me above the other people. I'm just like you. Oh, sure, I come later in the day, I get paid a lot more, and I take longer vacations, but I don't like the word boss. Hey, look at my feet. Okay. You like those moccasins? Look in your closet. There's a pair for you. Don't like them? Then neither do I. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe? Yes, once. The story was originally the idea of Greg Daniels. He's a Simpsons producer who created The Office and co-created King of the Hill, among other accomplishments. The writing credit on the episode goes to John Schwartzwelder. He's one of The Simpsons' most beloved writers. And the whole thing's about as close as it gets to perfect. And as The Simpsons settle into Cypress Creek, the town seems perfect, too. Homer's work life is amazing. They even encourage his laziness. Sir, I need to know where I can get some business hammocks. Hammocks? My goodness, what an idea. Why didn't I think of that? Hammocks! Homer, there's four places. There's the hammock hut. That's on third. Uh-huh. There's hammocks or us. Got that's it. on third, too. You got put your butt there? Mm-hmm. That's on third? Yeah. Swing low, sweet chariot? Right. Okay. Matter of fact, they're all in the same complex. It's the hammock complex down on third. Oh, the hammock district. That's right. But things aren't quite so perfect as they seem. For one thing, Marge, with nothing to worry over and no chores to do, thanks to a robotic vacuum, starts drinking, like heavily. And it turns out that Lisa is allergic to everything in town, like seriously, everything in town. And Bart, who can't read cursive, ends up in special ed. So, never learned cursive? Well, I know hell and damn and bit. Uh, cursive handwriting script. Do you know the multiplication tables? Long division? I know of them. Hmm. You know, Bart, I think you'd profit from a more remedial environment. I'm sure you'll feel right at home in the Leg Up program. And as for benevolent CEO Hank Scorpio, he 
is a Bond villain. Or, actually, for copyright reasons, he's a Bont villain. Ready for the link-up, Mr. Scorpio. Uh, Homer, one second. I gotta take care of this. Very important. Be right back. Fine. Good afternoon, gentlemen. This is Scorpio. I have the doomsday device. You have 72 hours to deliver the gold, or you face the consequences. And to prove I'm not bluffing, watch this. Oh, my God, the 59th Street Bridge. Maybe it just collapsed on its own. We can't take that chance. You always say that. I want to take a chance. Collapsed on its own, you sh... You have 72 hours. See you. Back to the hammocks, my friend. Yes. You know there's a little place called Mary Ann's Hammocks. The nice thing about that place is Mary Ann gets in the hammock with you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. You know who invented the hammock, Homer? No. That's something for you to do. Find that out. It's crazy to think that all this was written 20 years ago, before Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg turned the world upside down. The worst we had to worry about back then was Craig from Craigslist. He's a nice guy. I met him one time. The lesson here isn't so much that the tech economy is immoral. It's that it's amoral. It's a machine. It has no morality. It chases likes and A-B testing, revenue per click. It pursues what we tell it to, and that's usually not the public good. And, of course, all this gets sold to us as non-alloyed positive. In other words, it changes clothes down five and dimes into coffee shops. But sometimes it turns bums into mailboxes. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, there's great things about tech money. I had some truly fantastic biscuits and gravy one time in the Reddit cafeteria. But Schwartzwelder and the rest of the Simpsons folks just want us to ask a question. Is this gift what it seems to be? If we can't all be winners, then who here are the losers? In the end, Homer takes his family home, to Springfield. And in a way, the episode is fundamentally conservative. It's about how much home and family mean. It's a pay-on to sitcom stasis. But it's also kind of revolutionary. It asks us to question power, to decide what matters and why. Because when you trust blindly, you might end up trusting a Bond villain. Or, actually, sorry, a Bont villain. Homer, I'm disappointed, but I think you need to do what's best for your family. Well, thanks for everything, Hank. T-minus 14 seconds. Need anything? You call me. All right. What's the number? I never had to call my own company. Someone will tell you upstairs. But, Homer, on your way out, if you want to kill somebody, it would help me a lot. You're missing out on some fun! That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where we spotted our first lake swimmer of the year. What more iconic sign that spring is coming? Could there be than some gross person jumping into that gross lake to swim for some reason. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. 
They let us use it along with their label, Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free at MaximumFun.org, in your favorite podcast app, or on the Bullseye with Jesse Thorne channel on YouTube. You can follow Bullseye on Twitter, at Bullseye. I'm also on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne, J-E-S-S-E-T-H-O-R-N. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Garrett, please pack your knives and go. 